Hello everyone, this is your brief reminder that this is a re-upload of a conversation that happened a couple of years ago, so please forgive any outdated references or lack of references to things like the Final Fantasy VII Remake or Pixel Remasters that we didn't really know about at the time, and any of the little production snafus. We do get better and better, I think, at this as we went throughout. Remember that for more episodes, if you got to hear the next one right away and can't wait till next week, well, you can go on to patreon.com slash ffweekly. We recorded all the way up through the end of Final Fantasy VII. And for even more Final Fantasy stuff, plus Star Wars, MCU, DCEU, Lord of the Rings, professional wrestling talk, and sports talk, plus a, a bunch of the music that I've written and recorded myself, please check out patreon.com slash DC Productions. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy II. Final Fantasy II was released in 1988 in Japan, less than a full year after release of the original genre-defining, genre-shifting, certainly company-shifting game, the original Final Fantasy game. It was written and directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi, though he did get help from another writer on this one, probably because of the short development time. Kenji Terada. The music was, of course, by Nobuo Uematsu, artist Yoshitaka Amano, and our friend Akatoshi Kawazu returned to help with the battle system. Ira, yeah. your first experiences with this game? Sure. So I, as we have discussed previously, got into Final Fantasy for real when we first played Final Fantasy VI, then called Final Fantasy III. I started discovering the previous Final Fantasies. I started discovering the name discrepancies based upon Japanese versus North American releases. And I don't know if you will recall, but back in the late 90s, early aughts, the internet was different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> certainly was... accessing the internet was far different. Yeah. <laughs> but when I went to college in the fall of 1999, I finally got Ethernet cable internet access. Ooh, fancy. Yeah, it was super fancy, you know, for the time. And with this internet access that was much faster and much better, I discovered emulators and ROMs, and I was able to download a Nintendo Entertainment System emulator and a fan-translated Final Fantasy II. So I played Final Fantasy II... In the fall of 99, or possibly the first quarter of 2000. And yeah, this, this was it. It was, it was a lot like the original Final Fantasy that I played on the Nintendo Entertainment System uh, many years previous. It was, you know, black backgrounds and character sprites and not especially detailed maps compared to what I was used to now with Final Fantasy VI. So on the one hand, piracy is bad. Don't pirate games. On the other <laughs> right. hand... Uh, this was the only way at the time to play Final Fantasy II because the PlayStation version Origins hadn't come out yet. Wouldn't come out until 2003. Right. And Dawn of Souls, the version I've played several times now, uh, also was several years away. 
So, uh, yeah, this was my first experience with Final Fantasy 2. I have to ask you, little brother, what's your experience with Final Fantasy 2? Yeah, it's confession time. This is one I have to admit. One of the few games in the franchise that I have not played beginning to end. I don't know how we count 11 and 14, but both of those games, I mean, they do have campaigns, so... Uh, confession before we long before we ever get there Final Fantasy 11's the only numbered game in the franchise that I barely even started I didn't get through yeah. that at all uh, that That's was one that yeah so we're, we're probably when we get there gonna have to put that one off into our conversation about some of the side games as much as it is a numbered entry and I know there are people who love that game yeah people still play it yeah, I think it's financially the most successful one, or 14 is about to pass sure. it, because of course, you know, with enough people play those kinds of games, you can make a lot of money. But it's also, I think, the big reason why neither one of us got into 11. Right. I think we can still do an episode about it. I think we can still examine it, but it'll have to be as outsiders, which will be a, an interesting perspective for us on this. Right. Uh, for Final Fantasy 2, I have played it. I never played it in completion beginning to end. I I think there were a couple of times I watched you play it for a short little while, but that, like you said, that was once you were off at college, so not very much. Maybe, like, during a summertime, I, I obviously can't place it in, in exact time, but uh, confession mode, yeah, Final Fantasy II is one of the few in the franchise that I myself never played beginning to end, although I am familiar with its story. It's something that I, I can't remember there was a time where I was really into the Final Fantasy Wiki, which is the first time we've actually mentioned them on the podcast. But oh yeah, they they are well worth mentioning. Yeah, not that they. I was going to say not that they need a shout out from us, but getting into reading recaps of some of the stories that, like you said, and I think this was even before they came out. So by the time Final Fantasy II was finally re-released. I was kind of past going back and playing it. I was mentally just like, I don't know if I really want to do that because I've already read the whole story online. And I just, there were other newer Final Fantasies that I was playing at the time, whatever it may have been. So, yeah, unfortunately, I I don't have a, a story of, yeah, this is the time I sat down and played through this game because I never really did it in one sitting. I kind of, at different points in time put together the story on my own but this will be a fun you know going back and reliving it and, and talking with you who are you, your memories of it are going to be a lot more concrete than mine but there were absolutely some things about this game that stood out to me uh, when I did play it and certainly as I was reading through the story because I think like a lot of Final Fantasy fans who missed this game or maybe the next one because it didn't come out in the United States for a long time we assumed things like Eris is the first major character to die or you know certain things like that and you go back and you and I, as I was reading the story of Final Fantasy 2 I was like people be dying all over the place <laughs> there's uh there's a lot of stuff in this game that I think establishes what Final Fantasy is all about and when you look at it through that lens I think this game has as much interest as the first one
So one of the things this Final Fantasy would do is it would establish Final Fantasy not as a consecutive series, um, not like you would expect book one to follow, or book two to follow book one, book three to follow book two, but rather as their volumes in a, in a set of stories. Final Fantasy II is not a direct sequel to Final Fantasy, as you might expect from the naming convention. Right, and I think this is one of the things that sets it apart from a lot of other kinds of entertainment, whether it be sci-fi and fantasy or not. Typically, if you've got a two in your title, it's going to have characters and places and all of these kinds of things related to the first game. Other video game franchises that don't necessarily do it exactly that way like, for example, The Legend of Zelda, which is often, right. you know, one of those things that Final Fantasy gets compared to. They, while not being direct sequels themselves, they do always have the same characters, the same places. Not always the exact same sure. setting. They get creative and clever with that. Mario is another one where... Yeah, Mario's a, another example, I would think, that it's not about a continuing story. It's almost about telling the same story again in a different way. And I think Zelda does a lot of that, too. It's like there is a Zelda timeline, which some fans seem to have uh, take great joy in, in figuring out where everything goes. That's fun. Uh, yeah, but it's and Castlevania too, right? Right. Oh, Castlevania actually has an established one. Yeah. By by Konami. Yeah, yeah. They've in, come out and said the new the new cool anime with all with the uh, with the goat jokes. It fits. Yo, I know that 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 show was really <laughs> good. Side note. <laughs> Take an hour out of your life to watch the four episodes of Castlevania on Netflix. That is awesome. It was so good, enough. our mother liked it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But yeah, so those other franchises, they do that. But Final Fantasy gives you a completely new cast of characters, a completely new right. way of telling stories, new, new places world. to get used to. It'd be like if in Game of Thrones, after book one or season one, they were like, yeah, that's cool. Uh, now keep all that terminology, keep all of the ideas and the themes and how some of the world works and operates, but now you've got to learn a whole new cast of characters. Right. And, and a whole, a whole new, new situation. Yeah. yeah. You know something that I've never seen, but I think does this, a very similar idea is American Horror Story. Right? There, Some of the actors are the same, right? Some of the terminology is the same, but the from season to season, it's a brand new set of things, Right. That's exactly right. And the only reason I know that is because Caitlin watches that show and she has explained that to me. And I think that's really cool and interesting. I am too much of a wimp to watch American yeah. Horror Story. I, yeah, I won't watch horror movies, except for Cabin <laughs> in the Woods. It was really good. Yeah, in I case, still need getting, to watch that. We're getting a bit far afield. Shall we jump into the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy II? Let's do it. All right, let's start with the characters. Uh, compared to... Final Fantasy 1, which had a quartet of blank slates, all you got to choose was the character classes and the names, Final Fantasy 2 starts you off with a quartet of named characters. And they don't have classes in this one, but that's something we'll get into in the gameplay episode. The four characters you start out with are Firion, Maria, Guy, and Leon. And the very first thing that happens in Final Fantasy 2, as we mentioned in the previous episode, is you are running away from the town of Finn, which is being attacked and burned by the Empire. The Palamecian Empire. Yes. The and a, and a funny Empire. translation quirk, one of our running themes, that in the 
original. I think it was in the fan translated one, the one that a lot of people played the emulator. It was the Paramecian Empire with a K and an R, Paramecian as opposed uh, to Palamecian. <laughs> but that's a fan translated thing. Yeah. And uh, y again, if you know the Japanese language, it's easy to see how that particular mistake was made. Paramecian Empire. Furthermore, if anyone knows who the fans were who translated that, let us know so we can give them a shout out because that's yeah. way cool. Yeah. Allowed you to play the game four years before it was technically available. And again, you know, piracy is bad, but also thank you for the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> piracy is bad, also it's hard work. And there is a pirate in this game. We'll get to that too. That's fantastic. So you're fleeing your town of Finn. The character's parents have been killed in this attack by the Polynesian Empire. The Polynesian Empire attacking because Princess Hilda and her father... Uh, the rulers of Finn have stood up to the Palamecian Empire. So you get wrecked. That's the very first thing that happens. You have a fight with some dark knights of Palamecia, and you you get knocked down. You, you get all knocked down. <laughs> so when your characters wake up, they are in the rebel base in Altair, and they are minus one character. Leon, Maria's older brother and Furion and Guy's buddy, has gone missing. They don't know where he is. When they ask, nobody in the Rebellion seems to know where. So since they've just had their town burned and their parents killed and Big Brother's gone missing, presumably dead, they ask Princess Hilda if they can join the Rebellion, and Hilda refuses because they're just a bunch of kids. So they, got, they decide they got to prove themselves. So they decide to go back to Finn, this town that just got taken over by the Empire, and try to do something. They gotta do something. So they make their way back to Finn, and this has a little a little scenario that reminded me of Final Fantasy VI. Of course it came before Final Fantasy VI. But even if you've leveled up, or not leveled up, but even if you've gotten stronger since that first fight when you all got knocked down, Finn is filled with Dark Knights who will defeat you without any trouble at all. So you've got to get through the town of Finn without attracting the attention of the Knights. Which reminds me a lot of South Figaro in Final Fantasy VI when Locke is trying to get through town and he's got to... He does interact with the Imperials, but he's got to steal clothes. Yeah, so this is, again, an early trope being established before a lot of us would realize it, but them toying with a form of stealth gameplay. So in the town of Finn, our three heroes, they come across Prince Scott. Prince Scott is on his deathbed. He was in Finn when it was attacked, and he's not going to make it. And um, he tells them that Count... Borghen has betrayed the rebellion. And that's basically how the Empire was able to take Finn uh, as easily as it did. And he asks the heroes to encourage his brother, Gordon, to join the rebels. But Gordon's a bit of a coward. This is another trope we'll see, particularly in Edward in Final Fantasy IV, a, a reluctant hero, someone who's afraid to fight. 
That was one of the things, and this is a weird place to interject it, but when we were talking about some of the other things in pop culture that follow the Rebels versus Empires motifs and themes, and we were talking about, and I mentioned the X-Men, and then I just watched the most recent episode of The Gifted, and it was all about reluctancy to to join the cause and, and trying to figure out, you know, ways and uh, can, can we just go and be normal? And, and so it's like one of those things, again, we see here uh, being established early in the, the Final Fantasy franchise, long before Edward or Tara having her doubts about joining the cause or, you know, not like Vaughn. Vaughn was all in, you know, when he gets yeah, when we get to ready. there. Yeah. Uh, so also <laughs> completely different type of inciting incident it's one of the things that final fantasy tends to go back and forth on it's some people criticize the games for starting out exceptionally slow because games like 12 sure 10 after its immediate start kind of goes into this really slow moment Kingdom but hearts 2 right oh kingdom hearts 2 <laughs> has i think the slowest and i we loved that but yes, i know I a lot of people are highly critical of the but that's a probably the best example of a great story with a really slow start but then there are games like 13 throws you right into the middle of the action yeah. um I, I know some people don't like that game or don't consider it part of the franchise it is and we're gonna talk about it when we get there but here we are in Final Fantasy II, the first time they start you with immediately into the action, like your brother is lost and people are dying and your city's on fire and you're going to run right back into the, like, it's not like in Final Fantasy I where you're walking around in town. They're like, we don't know what happened to Garland. You know, right, it's right. much, much more intense. Gets, the, the story of this game gets grim in several spots. Yeah. So Scott gives our heroes, Prince Scott, excuse me, Prince Scott gives our heroes a ring that he knows Princess Hilda will recognize, and he sends you back to the rebel lair in Altair. And when our characters, when our heroes present the ring to Hilda and, and tell them that Scott died, she is at once saddened at her friend's death, and also she, she is convinced that Man, these kids were able to sneak back into Finn, not get beat up, not get caught. They're they're worthy to join the cause. Is this our first on-screen death of like just a people person in Final Fantasy? Because in the first game, I mean, you're killing monsters, and I guess right. presumably Garland dies when you defeat Chaos. But right, yeah, of a of a character who's certainly of a good guy, you know, quote unquote good guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he, he just sort of, like, dies there in the bed. Or in the first 20 minutes of the game, too. Yeah, very, very early on. So the first mission our group is given is to go get Mithril. Now, this is one of the things about Final Fantasy to me. Mithril, like... In Lord of the Rings, Mithril is the metal. It, Mithril is the most impressive metal. It's, it makes the best weapons, the best armor. And in Final Fantasy II, at least, it's kind of like just the first upgrade. <laughs> she wants you to go find Mithril in a town called Salamand. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, this is the first one, again, of 
mithril every time i watch lord of the rings or or uh now game of thrones they've got valyrian steel and dragon glass i'm like mithril and of course mithril <laughs> is big in in lord of the rings so i'm like mithril but there's also a, a long tradition of special weapons special armors that get you to do certain things like killing ice zombies or whatever it may be uh one of i think the first time that I was put on to a special weapon was in Chrono Trigger, where it plays a huge role in the story with Masamune. Yes. Masa and Mune. Masa and Mune, uh, which is some great stuff. But this, I think, is the first time that the Final Fantasy franchise bothers to make great import of a particular kind of weaponry though as you say it's interesting that right off the bat they don't make a huge deal of mithril which later on would go on to be a huge deal right 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 and uh and it is worth remembering in final fantasy one the the dwarven blacksmith will make you excalibur excalibur right <laughs> so in your mission to go get mithril you are joined by Princess Hilda's right-hand man and sort of white mage, but really he can learn any magic, Minwu. What a great name. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, but that's the way I've always pronounced it. It is spelled... That's going to happen a lot on this podcast, because I know, like you said earlier, South Figaro, every time I've heard somebody else pronounce that name, it's been Figaro, which I hate. Yeah. We've always said Figaro, yeah. but... I know the common pronunciation is Figaro. We're going to pronounce a lot of things our way, the way we've always pronounced them. There are some, as we talked about in a previous episode, that we're going to change. But uh, Minwoo is how it's pronounced on the Final Fantasy Weekly Pod. And it is spelled M-I-N-W-U. So I'm not sure how else I would pronounce that. You and your study of Japanese, do you have a? That should be Minwoo. Yeah, Minwoo sounds right. So we're right. So we just said all that for though no my reason. study my study of Japanese says it should be Sephiroth and again that's another one that we've always pronounced that way and is now in canon because they have voice actors in Advent Children and a number of other things with Final Fantasy 7 the American pronunciation is Sephiroth. So really? I guess we but have to deal with it Sephiroth. on that. One. I know. <laughs> In the We're song just, in the first in Final Fantasy VII, the game, right? I know, I know, I know. Right. <laughs> We're we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Minwoo, Minwoo, what up? Uh, he's got the canoe, and Minwoo with the canoe, and that <laughs> lets you cross rivers and lakes, and you're able to go north. And you're supposed to meet with a guy named Joseph, who is a member of the rebellion, but he, we haven't heard from him in a while. So you, you get up to Salamand up in the north. There's lots of fighting along the way. And and you find Joseph. But you can, if you're one of those folks who likes to wander around quite a bit, you can find the town of Poft, P-O-F-T. And in Poft, we get our first appearance of Sid. Sid. Who? Sid. Have you, have you heard of Sid? No, what's a um, Sid? In Final Fantasy One: Dawn of Souls, he was maybe a, a prophet from a long time ago. Barely mentioned. Yeah, but, yeah no, but that's 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 retroactive <laughs> history. That's the Where, I mean, Yeah, yeah. So, if you were living in Japan in 1988 and played this game, which, by the way, 
a lot of people did. It's not like this game didn't sell well in Japan. I'm not entirely sure. I think the general consensus and my guess would also be that the decision not to bring it to the United States immediately has to do with what we talked about, which was it being a sequel that in no way was related to the original and that American audiences might find that confusing. But if you were playing Final Fantasy II in Japan in 1988, or if you happened to be a clever college kid any time between then and when it was released for the PlayStation in 2003, you got the true first introduction to Sid right here at this spot. Again, Final Fantasy II being a trailblazer, man. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so Sid doesn't do much in this game. He mostly hangs out in this bar in Poft and, and loans out his airship to you. And you what can bounce around the map. Sorry. <laughs> Just, anyway. <laughs> Continue. You, you can bounce around the world map in in his airship for a fee. You would eventually, or you will eventually get command of your own airship, uh, but that's not till later. But again, establishing early that not only is there a Sid, and is Sid something that's important to the Final Fantasy franchise? In fact, we will be doing a Sid podcast at some point, an all-Sid podcast, where I will force my brother to name his favorite Sid of all time. We're not going to do that here and now. That would be unfair. Just spring it on you. But I you have to pick one. Choose, I, do I? Because yeah. we're not actually in the same room. Yeah, so no, I'm not sure I know. what leverage you have here. You no, know, I will force you to pick one. We'll do that one when we are in the same room. And I will literally hold you down. <laughs> You're just taller than me. You're not bigger than me. But not only is there always a Sid, but there's always an airship. <laughs> and there's always a Sid having to do with an airship. Sid is inextricably linked to the airship. And that begins with his very first appearance. You do eventually get to the town of Salamand and you find Joseph. But Joseph... Joseph isn't real interested in helping. See, his daughter has been kidnapped. Damned NPCs. Yeah, the Palamecian Empire has kidnapped his daughter. Specifically, Count Borghen has kidnapped his daughter, his daughter and has threatened to kill her if he helps the resistance. So Brutal. Yeah, <laughs> th this is a child we're talking about. She may just be pixels to us, but she is a person to Joseph and... He's not willing to risk her. But he does tell our heroes to go to Semit Falls. Sure. So you can go to Semit Falls, and being the PC party, you're able to free the townsfolk, including Nellie, Joseph's daughter, and a thief named Paul. Interesting that all the names are so normal in this game. I think that's one of the things that threw me off was I was so used to, like in A Game of Thrones or in Lord of the Rings, the names are so stand out. They're or the only Final people. Fantasy twelve. Yeah, well, sure. Those guys really the the Final Fantasy twelve people, the tactics guys, the vagrant story guys. I'm for, Matsuno. Yeah, those guys are really into the super weird names. But even like Tara Branford is not a name you hear. Tara in and of itself as a name is not common. Cloud and Squall and Titus. These are not sure. common people names. Even the secondary characters, Cyan, the Celeste. Sure. They're not common modern names. Neither. Neither for English or Japanese-speaking audiences. Right. Some of those, right? The, the ones that sound kind of more normal to us, like Irvin, sound exotic to the Japanese. Like, Tara was almost Tina, but they're like, eh, right. that doesn't really work in Japan. But 
here, I mean, you've got Leon and Maria and Scott and <laughs> right, know. yeah, yep. We also have Minwoo though, so there's that. But Minwoo, so we, there's a balance. There's always a balance. Paul is an interesting NPC. He never joins the party, but he is like the the best thief of the rebellion, and he pops up a lot in the game. He actually really reminds me of Tristan from Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. Nice, just this kind of cool. Yeah, this this cool character who pops in and out. Though Tristan does join, you know what what passes for a party in Mystic Quest. I suppose more famously, Shadow kind of does that thing where he comes yep. and goes from your party as he pleases, as the storyline uh, suggests he should. <laughs> it's interesting that I pulled Tristan before I pulled Shadow. Dude, I think that's cool, man, because you have that relationship with Mystic Quest, which is an underrated experience. Not necessarily an underrated video game, but it's an underrated experience. And Tristan's awesome. I remember thinking that Tristan was a badass long before we ever got to the Shadow situation. So, yes, but again, the, and this is what Final Fantasy II nailed over and over again. Got there first. It's like the yeah. Simpsons did it episode of South Park. Final <laughs> Fantasy II is essentially the like all the stuff you love that comes later in the franchise, like Final Fantasy II did it. Yep. So having rescued the townsfolk of Salamand and Nelly and Paul, you get the mithril, and you're able to take it back to Altair. And in Altair, the weaponsmith Tobol, the weaponsmith of the Rebellion, he crafts mithril equipment for the Resistance, and our party gets to gear up. And that's that's a big moment for us. Because Final Fantasy II's got a whole different system of... of it's not leveling up, but of powering up. And getting new gear really helps when one of your major ways to power up is just getting better equipment. You know what else this foreshadows? What's that? That moment in Final Fantasy VII where you've played through like the entire Midgar scenario and then you're outside and you're finally leaving the city and they're like, oh, by the way, here's Materia. Here's what Materia yes, does. Here's right. what you're going to do. This is very similar to that. But well first, obviously. <laughs> Again. <laughs> so the Rebel Alliance or the Wild Rose Rebellion, as they're actually called. They've begun to hear about an Imperial superweapon called the Dreadnought. Sid may have the first airship in this world, but the Dreadnought is the biggest, baddest, scariest airship in this world. And, and we start to hear whispers about it, and so Hilda dispatches our heroes to find and destroy the Dreadnought. It was built the rumors say, under the authority of an Imperial known as the Dark Knight. Hmm, who could the Dark Knight be? Did you listen to last episode? Mm. <laughs> yeah, spoilers, we already know, but still, yeah, another early establishment of a common theme. So you go to Bafsk, B-A-F-S-K, it's a town, Bafsk. What is with the town names in this game? There's also Palum, which we'll get to eventually. Yeah, which I always thought was a reference to Palum because I'm an idiot and I played Final Fantasy IV before I played Final Fantasy II. I thought that was Final Fantasy II. I know, right? I know. That made it all the more confusing. By the way, what did you say the name of the rebel group was? The Wild Rose Rebellion. 
Yeah, our first reference to the War of the Roses, or the Wars of the Roses, which would play a huge role in defining Final Fantasy tactics, also a major role in the inspiration of Game of Thrones, House Tyrell having the sure. rose as their house sigil, but also the whole thing being based on those wars with the Yorks and the Lancasters, of course, the Starks and the Lannisters, and Final Fantasy Tactics. So the Wars of the Roses, major influences on a lot of different Final Fantasy and fantasy stuff in general, as we talked about Game of Thrones. And so it's one we haven't mentioned before, but Wars of the Roses, I think that's a direct reference to. So you get through the Caves of Basque just in time to see the Dreadnought take off. Turns out the Dark Knight uh, was ready and, and they, they leave in their giant war machine. And then towns get bombed. So the Dreadnought attacks Poft, Palum, and Gatria, and Altair. And Altair, again, is where our rebels are hiding. Fortunately, the rebel base managed to get through things unharmed, but the king is injured and ailing. The king doesn't get a name, by the way. It, Princess Hilda gets a name. King doesn't get a name, which is a, a gender swap from what normally happens. Like, normally it would be Don Quixote and Sancho get a name, and the niece and the housekeeper are just the niece and the housekeeper. Yeah. Uh, I think, again, Final Fantasy carving out early that it's going to start, of all the things it messes with, of all the rules it plays with, that's absolutely going to be one. You've got a female main character in your party in this game. You've got some females who are more respected in their positions of power than males. So, again, early on, Final Fantasy going, now. Nah, we're about this other thing. So the Rebels realize they've got to destroy the Dreadnought. They've got to destroy this giant machine. And the way they figured they can do it is by getting an artifact called Sunfire from the Kashuan Keep. Unfortunately, in order to get into Kashuan Keep, you need either the Goddess Bell or the Voice of Kashuan. They don't have the Voice of Kashuan, but they know where the Goddess Bell is. The Goddess Bell is in the Snow Cavern north of Salamand. So Minwu stays to look after the king, so you go north by yourself, you get to Salamand, and Joseph decides, you know what? I, I owe you one. You saved my daughter. You saved my town. He's got a snowcraft. You can't get across these snowy plains up there without the snowcraft. This is a, a pretty straightforward dungeon. You go across the snow. You fight through the dungeon. And, and you leave. And then this, this is where things get grim. Because you've got the goddess spell. You're leaving the dungeon. You're, you are attacked once again by that traitor, Count Borgen. And you defeat him. Because, you know, you're the good guys and he's the bad guy. But then, <laughs> but then Count Borgen, in his final moments, he's dying. He releases this boulder trap that comes tearing down the stairs at you. And Joseph, he stops it with his bare hands and gives our three main characters a chance to escape. And they do. And then the boulder, he can't hold it anymore. And it smashes him into the wall. And even playing this on an emulator with the simple graphics of the time, that was a stunning moment. I hadn't, I didn't have like this great emotional attachment to Joseph. I liked him well enough. I was glad we were able to save his daughter. I understood why he didn't want to help at first. I got all that. But, but I wasn't like, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't of great importance to me. Even so. I was not used to main characters getting killed off in the storyline. 
it was it was quite the surprise to me and again showed that this was kind of a different kind of story it's one of the things as i was reading back through it i went oh no way because it's one thing to have as we talked about at the very beginning of the story an npc who was essentially like wounded in the inciting incident so okay sure a soldier dies at the beginning and that sets you out on your quest but somebody whom you met during the course of the story who just happened to join up with you, who's helping you complete your task to have it only be completed through his sacrifice. And we're jumping way ahead here again, but this has been sort of my running theme throughout is an early establishment of the Palamporum situation. Sure. Yeah, where good example. You have to hold the thing back. You have to make that sacrifice so the rest of the party can move on. And this was the first one. And it also reminds me, we talked a lot in the Rebels Empire episode, of course, about Star Wars. But the very early scene in the trash compactor. Yes. Oh, that is Pelham and Purim all over. But they get out of it in the Star Wars. In Final Fantasy, they seem to always take a slightly darker path on that situation and you either end up getting turned to stone or in this particular case getting crushed to death under the weight of the boulder and yeah it was impactful like i said at the beginning my situation was reading it just reading the words on the page of what happened not watching the pixel art of it unfold and i was struck by it i went oh for real we just met him no way yeah yeah it's, it's pretty sudden, and it's pretty shocking. So our party is absolutely determined now to take down the Dreadnoughts so that Joseph's sacrifice is not in vain. We go to Kashuan to retrieve the Sunfire, now that we have the Goddess Spell, and we meet there Gordon. We'd already heard about Gordon from his brother, Scott, who died early on. I'm telling you with these names, the the towns are absolutely off the chart, but the people, we got Gordon and Scott. I couldn't help but think of a line from one of our favorite writers, Aaron Sorkin, Sports Night. How many people can you think of named Gordon? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I can can think of one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, they only came up with two, but we have found the third Gordon. He is the brother of Scott. (laughs) All right. So Gordon, even though he's afraid, he wants to live up to his brother's expectations. I know the feeling. He joins the party. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, He joins the party and he helps find the torch that you need to capture, to carry the Sunfire because the Sunfire is, you know, hot. (laughs) Right. So that's a success. You get the Sunfire, feeling good. And as you leave, you see Sid's airship being captured by the Dreadnought. It's messed up. Yeah, but now we know where the Dreadnought is. So we're able to go to where it is, which is... In the sky, I believe. Well, it it parks, you see. So it captures Sid's airship, and then it parks because it's got to refuel because giant war machines require a lot of fuel. Makes sense. 
So you decide uh, you need to go back to their old base in Altair because we've got the Sunfire and we can destroy the Dreadnought if we can find it. Here, though, uh, is a, as a brief interlude, is the first time for yet another Final Fantasy staple you can find the Chocobo Forest. What? Chocobo? Let's try to answer this question. Sorry, go ahead. What is a Chocobo? It's a... Okay. You have yet to see Avatar The Last Airbender, right? Correct. You've got to watch it. They have Chocobos. But they don't call them Chocobos. They call them like... Oh, what do they call them? Like ostrich mounts or something. There are probably people as mad at me for not seeing Avatar The Last Airbender as there are people mad at you for having not seen enough Game of Thrones. And then there are going to be the cross section of people in the middle who are just like, I'm not listening to these guys anymore. They're not good enough nerds. Well, I will eventually watch Game of Thrones. I don't know if you will ever watch Avatar The Last Airbender. I will. That's actually a lot easier than watching seven seasons of Game of Thrones. Or a lot quicker, I should say. I don't know if easier is the right word. But the thing about Avatar is it's not readily available. That's it's true. not, you got to like pay for it somehow. That's true but. now, which is a darn shame. Anyway, we're getting a bit far afield. So what is a chocobo? A chocobo is a, is a bird instead of a horse. It's, it's the mount of the Final Fantasy multiverse. It is the ubiquitous workhorse, except it's, you know, a bird. It's a bird. It's a two-legged mount, which makes it not especially comfortable, I would think, as it's been uh, rendered into 3D. There are times like, yeah, that doesn't look like a comfortable ride, but they do look fast. They're presumably smart they, they as it goes on to be told they're very smart in certain iterations of the beast is beast the right word are they a beast are they an animal are they tamed are they wild i suppose it depends yeah i think it kind of depends on which final fantasy you're in certainly boko bart's chocobo in final fantasy 5 seems to have be of higher intelligence correct whether or not they're fully sapient tough to say which would make some of the Chocobo Racing stuff in 7 and, and 14 and the other ones were... And, and Chocobo Racing, certainly, Chocobo uh, a breeding. little bit odd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Mm. Gets a little strange. All right. But maybe the most famous symbol associated with the franchise? Certainly maybe one of them. Uh, Mog was right on the front of Final Fantasy VI's box art. So I think Moogles are a pretty strong... Oh, but, hmm, yeah, you might be right. Chocobos are certainly one of the most indelible images, to use that word again. Indeed. I was trying to avoid it. I'm just glad that you did this time, but... <laughs> well, being an English teacher. I mean, yeah. Chocobos, though, I think, you know, for the people I've introduced to the franchise, it seems to be one of the things that immediately sticks out. Like, oh, I like that. That's cool. That's interesting. That's a design I can immediately get behind. I don't know. There's something about it. The the music that goes with it. Everything having to do with Chocobos. So, again, Final Fantasy II did it first. Even the song. Yeah, and that, that theme remains. It's played at every Final Fantasy concert ever. They, they will riot if you don't play that song. And by they, you mean you, right? <laughs> no, I. you know what's funny? I'm not even that into that piece of music. I did a top 100 Uematsu songs at one point. Did not make my list. That's right. I listed 100 Nobuo Uematsu songs. You are songs. a bad nerd. 
did not do the Chocobo theme, but uh, as we were walking out of that concert, we heard some people saying, man, it was really cool that they did One Winged Angel, but then I'm really glad they finished with the Chocobo theme. I was like, that's what you needed to make your night, but it 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 means something to people. It's in every single game. It keeps getting readapted, and Chocobos... It's just, you can't separate Final Fantasies from Chocobos. You just cannot do it. So back in Altair, our heroes learn that the Dreadnought has parked to refuel. There's a narrow strip of land between Finn and Kashun Keep. And this is actually kind of a fun... You know how Final Fantasy maps, if you go all the way north, you end up on the south. If you go all the way east, you end up on the west. Sure. Yeah, so... (laughs) If you were to go all the way north on a globe, you wouldn't immediately end up in the south. You'd still be in the north. If you were to go to the North Pole and then continue upon that line of uh, longitude, you would still be in the north but heading south. You wouldn't be in the south heading north. So imagine the, the square map of a Final Fantasy game. Now attach the top and the bottom. You've got a, a tube, right? Yeah, like in that Simpsons episode where they go into 3D. I have no idea what you're talking about, but okay. (laughs) Now, attach the left part of the map to the right part of the map. If you attach the two ends of a tube, you've got a donut, right? Yeah. So Final Fantasy maps don't actually represent a globe. They represent a donut. Now, I don't think that Final Fantasy worlds are meant to actually be donuts. I'm pretty sure they're meant to be globes. And we see that when we see them from space, as in 4 and 7 and so on. But it's a, it's an interesting quirk of this particular map that this little spit of land is, like, in the corners, where the corners meet. And so it's it's kind that, of off the map in a way. It exists in an incredibly peculiar place of space and time because of everything that you just described that it's not only in a strange place on the map as it is but that the map as it is is a peculiar thing right that's cool i i can't believe i've never really thought about it that way but you're right that doesn't really make sense the way you fly far enough to the east and all of a sudden you're just on the west part of the like that's not how a globe right. actually works. It's an odd representation, kind of like the battle system is an odd representation of the way fighting would actually work. Because as we've talked about, no one would actually stand still and wait for their opponent to hit them. The battle system is a representation of a fight or a fight incredibly slowed down. So I guess the world map is a representation of where you are. The pixels are representations of the characters, of Yoshitaka Amano's artwork. So I guess it all fits. That's cool. So on the Dreadnought, you are able to rescue Sid and Hilda. Hilda was on Sid's airship when it was captured. At Sid's direction, you toss the Sunfire into the Dreadnought's core, and the whole thing's going to explode when you are stopped by the Dark Knight in the engine room. And Maria, Maria recognizes the Dark Knight's voice. But there's no time to figure out what's going on and you've got to escape as it explodes. Yeah, good stuff. Memorable scene, again, one of the few that I actually remember from the pixels, not from reading it. When I got there as I was reading it, I was like, yeah, I remember this part because I remember the explosions and I remember the Dark Knight and I remember her being like, hang on, hold on a minute. 
I recognize that voice. It's just a memorable moment. So, flush with victory, we return to Altair only to learn that the king is about to die. Bummer. Yeah. As he is dying, he puts together this plan. A plan to take out the Empire. He's going to have Minwu head to Mycidia to get the Ultima spell. Both Mycidia and Ultima would show up again in Final Fantasy. He's going to have Gordon take control of the rebel army and attack Finn directly. And he's going to have Firion head to the nation of Deist, D-E-I-S-T. Deist, maybe? Yeah, maybe. To ally with the Dragoons. So that's the three-pronged attack that the king devises as he's dying, and then he dies. We've got, let's see, there's Scott, Joseph, and now the king. have all died on screen. Yeah, three, three dead. Where the last game was like zero. Right. Not to mention all the towns that have been blown up. It's been pretty gruesome. Brutal so far. Dark game. Dark tone. Maybe that's another reason why they weren't sure American audiences could deal with it. To talk about something else we've mentioned on the podcast before. I saw the new Blade Runner recently. And famously, the original Blade Runner. There's about 72 different versions you can watch. Because... (laughs) The theatrical release was heavily influenced by executives and producers who were worried that the ambiguous ending was going to leave American audiences in a bad place and that was going to mean they weren't going to like it. So they put in an ending that made people feel a little more warm and fuzzy. And so maybe that's part of the reason why the creators of Final Fantasy thought maybe this game where like three people die in the first half of it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Maybe a bit much. So to get to the nation of, how did you say it? Diest. Diest. To get to the nation of Diest, you got to sail. And we, we do not yet have a ship and Sid's ship is, Sid's airship is no longer around. So our party accepts passage from this woman named Leela, L-E-I-L-A, Leela. And then it turns out she's a pirate and she attacks you with his, with her pirate crew. Now you, being a, a party of impressive adventurers at this point, defeat the pirates. And in the long tradition of Final Fantasy pirates, she decides to join you and, and give you control of her ship. You gotta love a good pirate or a bad pirate. I guess I'm not good or bad pirates. That's the thing about pirates. <laughs> so, so just uh, much like Bike from Final Fantasy 1... She gives you control of her ship, but she actually joins your party, too. Once you reach Deist, you find that the Dragoons have all fallen in battle, and there is only one Weverin left alive, and it's dying because it's been poisoned by the Empire. Again, Empires are willing to poison people. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Dragoons? Yes. Wyverns? Yes. Empire poisoning people. Yes. I'm just saying Final Fantasy II did it first. That's all <laughs> I'm saying. It's worth noting that uh, once we finally meet a Dragoon, he doesn't jump. Right. But this is, again, and I'm jumping way ahead. Getting a little bit ahead here, but the first Highwind, the first named Dragoon. Yes. It's all right here. Yes, but we don't meet him yet. 
No, so I jumped ahead a little bit in the story, but still, the Dragoons, this is the first time you see them. Without the jumping, sure, but again, the stage has been set. So the dying Weverin sees that this is a good group and gives gives them her last Weverin egg, which the party drops into the healing spring at the bottom of Deist Cavern. This particular mission was not so much... A victory, and our characters return to Altair, empty-handed, a bit downcast, and things get even worse in Altair because it turns out that Hilda they rescued from the Dreadnought was not actually Princess Hilda, but a Lamia. So uh, Lamias are from Greek mythology. There was a a Greek queen who became a child-eating demon. Bummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, <laughs> a sort of snake creature in Greek mythology. So you you defeat the Lamia Queen no problem, but then you learn that Hilda Hilda is being held as a prize in the tournament at the Palamecium Coliseum. That's creepy. Yeah, something we've seen in some X Men comics and stuff like that before. Something that's a, a fantasy sci fi trope you'll see is different um, species or different cultures, usually alien species holding somebody of your party or somebody you know in this super weird, sometimes gladiatorial thing or as a prize for a thing. Yeah, yeah, gross, gross. (laughs) So the party heads, uh, the party joins up with Gordon again and you go to the Palamecian Coliseum, you defeat a behemoth. Hey, a what? Uh, A behemoth. you you know. The one, you know. Final Fantasy II did it first. Keep going. And then you you earn Hilda as a prize, which is... Uh, But the Emperor, of course, is overseeing the match and dispatches the party and has them thrown into dungeons. Bummer, dude. Brutal. (laughs) But, thank goodness, back in the Summit Falls, we rescued a thief named Paul. Because Paul shows up and rescues us. Hilda and Gordon escape. And the rest of us, uh, you know, draw the attention of the guards to make sure they escape. And, all right, we're, you know, we're not totally losing here, us rebels. Yeah, a little bit of a momentum swing. So the next thing we got to do is we're, we're going to take back Finn. We decided, you know what, the rebel army ha- has made some headway into Finn. But we, as the player characters, we're going to get this done. So you go into Finn. We're much stronger than the last time we've, we came into Finn. You, had, you go straight to the throne room. There's a couple of gatos. G-O-T-T-O-S. Gato. Not that gato. Chrono Trigger? You know, I, I said at the beginning that the Emperor Matthias of Palamecia has opened the gates of hell to start his conquest of the world. So a lot of the enemies you're fighting through this game are demons. Uh, and these are a pair of demons that are sitting in the throne room and you're able to take them out. After taking back Finn, we find that Minwu has still not returned with the Ultimatome. So the king's three-pronged plan has largely failed. The Dragoons are all dead. Minwu has not come back with the Ultimatome. All we've managed to do is take back Finn. So Hilda tells us to go find Minwu at the Mycidian Tower. So on the way to the Mycidian Tower, our team is swallowed by the Leviathan. Now this I remember. <laughs> Because it's really freaking weird. And I think pretty clearly, if not purposefully, a direct homage to Pinocchio. I mean, <laughs> well, of course, the Bible. I was going to say there was a biblical I mean, story about people getting swallowed by whales. 
Right. <laughs> so that that comes first, clearly. I mean, you know, I always think of Pinocchio because it's the first one I saw, so sue me. <laughs> but, yeah, it's that thing, but also really strange to bear witness to. And one of the first times I remember thinking of early days pixel art, like, this is kind of gorgeous to behold. It's really weird and cool. So within the Leviathan, you're, you have to let the Leviathan's innards are a dungeon. You have to fight through the dungeon. You eventually meet Ricard Highwind, the last dragoon. And with his help, you're able to get out of the Leviathan, retake your ship, and head to the Tower of Mycidium. The first dragoon. The last dragoon. Ha! You're so clever. They're so clever. Come on. That's good. I don't know if they knew they were going to go on and have Dragoons be a big deal, but they had to know that character design was awesome. At the top of the Tower of Mycidia, you find Minwu at the Chamber of the Seal. He's been waiting for us. He knows the Ultima Tomb is past this seal, but he doesn't have enough power, so he's got to use all of his life force to break the seal. And we have yet another character death. Four? Uh, second main party, but yeah, including the king and Scott. Yeah, that's four. Yeah. Rough. Starting to creep up on Shakespeare levels. <laughs> It'd be like the end of Hamlet. Yeah. I had a great high school teacher who you know, Mr. Jacobs. Cool. Great dude. high school teacher. Met up with him at a Rockies game recently. Just cool. a great guy. Yeah, it was awesome. And... I remember explicitly when he taught King Lear, when we got to the final chapter or two, he wrote all the characters' names on the board. And then as we were reading through, he would just go up and start crossing off names. Wow. When I read this story, it was probably about a year after that lesson. It was when I was in college, and instead of playing the ROM, I was reading it on the Final Fantasy Wiki. And when I got to this part, I was like, this is like Mr. Jacob starting crossing off the names at the end of King Lear. After collecting the ultimate tome from the Mycidian Tower, uh, we discover that the towns of Altair, Gatria, Palum, and Poft have all been destroyed by a mysterious force known as the Cyclone. This is a direct result of Emperor Matthias of Palamecia being a conquest-minded psychopath. Hilda has a pendant, though, that can be used to call Weverins. And this is important because we put the last Weverin egg in that healing spring at the bottom of Deist Cavern. So this is where the endgame starts to happen. The cyclone, we learn, has killed a lot of people, and it's also the only way to get to this fortress in the center where the emperor is. So we decide we got to go there. So we use the pendant to call the Weverin that we rescued as an egg. It gets us into the fortress in the center of the cyclone. We confront the emperor. We defeat the emperor. Hooray! Except... All right. Well, yeah, except not, not quite. Oh, no. You head back to Finn. 
there's a bit of a celebration, and then we find out that the Dark Knight, named Leon, has crowned himself emperor. Oh no. Yeah. Sid, uh, who died in the attack on Paloom, so that's another death. Five. Has given the party the uh, airship, and we're able to fly to Palamecia. And we're, we're trying to convince Leon to not continue the Emperor's conquest-driven ways. But before that conversation can commence, the Emperor returns from hell. What? The Emperor returns from hell. Do you remember when I said at the beginning that he opened the gates of hell to begin his conquest? Well, yeah. now the Emperor has returned to hell. Returned from hell. Gatekeeper. Yeah, found the key master. No, it's... So he's more powerful than ever, and he, he plans to bring, you know, hell on earth, and it's not really about ruling the earth so much as making the earth into his own personal hell. Hell on earth and bad will toward men. So Rickard Highwind holds off the hellish emperor and dies in the process while our characters are able to run away for the moment. Six... So Leon is thus convinced to rejoin the party. And we never really get a lot of explanation for why he joined the Empire to begin with. He does not appear to have been under mental control, like Kane Highwind in Final Fantasy IV or Golbez in Final Fantasy IV. He seems to have just joined up and, and was really being the Dark Knight. He is convinced, though, when the Emperor returns from Hell to rejoin the party, and after entering the Castle Pandemonium... Which has got to be a Dante's Inferno reference, right? Yep. Also, another thing that they would allude to in Final Fantasy VIII kind of a little bit, there would be a summon named Pandemonium. Also, they would have Pandora's Box, which is right. a similarly related idea. So this this is the last dungeon. Uh, you got to fight a lot of powerful monsters, including Count Borgen comes back as an undead. You got to kill him again. Uh, and you finally get to the top of the castle and you fight the the dark side of the emperor and defeat him and then that is in fact the end of the game you get a little cutscene where back at castle finn hilda and gordon and nelly and leela and paul congratulate the victory and mourn the dead the portal to hell is closed and all the creatures of hell return to hell and this this world got messed up but that is at least in the original version, the end. It's a somber ending. It begins on an action note of fires and doom and death and running away and being scared and not being strong enough. And it ends with finally being strong enough to overcome the hell demon who has opened the gates of hell. But... So many people have died and so much destruction has occurred that the ending can't be just 100%. Hey, way to go. Happy ending. Like, you know, we talked about in the episode about the first game, how it ends. You kind of eliminate whatever damage was done and you don't know what will come. You stop the 2000 year time loop. So the wreckage of the four fiends will never occur. You don't know what will happen from there on out. In this game, obviously, there's nothing of the sort. The damage that's been done has been done. The people who are dead are dead. The towns that have been destroyed are gone. And so there's this kind of like, 
I guess we rebuild from here. We are the survivors. Right. There is, in the Dawn of Souls version of Final Fantasy II, a sort of epilogue that I really enjoy. Minwoo, Scott, Joseph, and Rickard, all of whom, as you will recall, died, wake up in the afterlife. They find Sid and Tobel, both of whom died in the various bombings. And they come to understand that they're in the afterlife, and you can explore some dungeons and such. But the real fun here is that you find out that uh, the Emperor still sort of exists here. And so the, while uh, Firion and his buddies in the uh, material world, in the prime material plane, if we're going to use a Dungeons & Dragons reference, uh, defeated that part of the Emperor, uh, there's still some work to be done. So you find your way back to the Chamber of the Seal at the top of the Mycidian Tower, and Minwu is this time able, able to break the seal. Since he's already dead, he can't kill himself to do it again. And you're able to claim Ultima, though you have to fight Ultima Weapon to do so. Yeah, little retroactive weapon thing. That's cool. It's like, hey, look, Final Fantasy VII did, or I'm sorry, two did so many things first that you might as well pull something from a later game that nailed the concept. Let's have a weapon. Is there an Why Ultima not? weapon in six, or is that Atma weapon? There's an Atma weapon that's a that, sword, an Atma weapon that's a beast? I believe Atma is just a mistranslation or a an odd translation of Ultima. Fair enough. So yeah, then you have to get to the Unknown Palace, which is a lot like the Pandemonium Palace. Uh, you get some special weapons, and then you meet the Light Emperor. So I told you we defeated the Dark Emperor in the material world. Here there's the Light Emperor. The Light Emperor asks for forgiveness for his dark side's actions. He, he tells you that once he was killed, he was split into these two entities, light and dark. You know, he, he explains that, like, we're on the passage to heaven, but it's kind of blocked, but you have to forgive me. Turns out, not so much. The light half of the emperor is also evil. So you got to fight and, and destroy the light half of the emperor. And when you do, finally able to, uh, from these characters' perspectives, open the, the way into the afterlife and, and uh, finally sort of dissipate in, in the way that spirits often do. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's maybe a retroactive way of adding a little bit of nuance to this story where originally it was pretty black and white. The good guys are the good guys. The bad guys are the bad guys. The Palamecian Empire is the bad guys. The guy who's opening the gate to hell and then has become a demon himself pretty clearly a bad guy so they were i think painting with while this was a more nuanced story and as we talked about a tragic story that i think is challenging on many ways it doesn't really get into nuanced character driven motivations for their characters or for their villains or you know so we've got ourselves in the remake a little recognition that later games would go on to have this more nuanced tone to good versus evil. And I think it's a good thing to go back and put in the game because that was the one kind of critique I had of it when, as I mentioned, I read <laughs> through the final parts of the story was that I was used to Final Fantasy, in particular the villains, having a more nuanced reason for what they were doing, why they were villainous. There was always some kind of explanation. And I felt like in this game... 
you just kind of had to accept that the bad guys are bad guys. And this addition makes that question all that much more interesting because it provides a scenario where the light side of a person it says there's a difference between light and darkness and good and evil, yeah. which is something that would really be explored in Kingdom Hearts and, uh, you know, I think in Final Fantasy X a lot. So we'll, we'll get there. But, yeah, really interesting stuff. I think Western audiences are less accustomed to the idea of yin and yang. As you were saying, yin and yang is about dark and light, feminine and masculine, hard and soft. It's not about good and evil. So it's it's absolutely possible for a light character to be selfish and destructive and conquest driven just in a different way than a dark character might be and and that's something we we talk a lot about how final fantasy combines western and eastern sensibilities combines sensibilities from a lot of different cultures and i think this is a even though it's a a retroactive addition a really interesting one at that. And I think it, it adds to the story, like I said, because it's one thing that it was missing. But it does have that element of darkness. And if you look at it in conjunction with the first game, then I think you've got the first game, which very much has a light tone and a an optimistic ending to the second game, which has this somber tone and this somber ending. And there's never really any kind of peaceful conclusion there's no there's no closure so one of the things we do when we analyze or critique literature is we try to pick a lens through which to understand the story now as we've just said final fantasy 2 the big themes are really good versus evil though it gets a little more nuanced with the cavern of souls in the remake and it's also the rebels versus the empire which we already covered in the previous episode so i thought we might take a moment to pick a lens through which to try to understand Final Fantasy II. And I thought we would use the idea of individualism versus society. Let's look at this story through the lens, through a societal lens, uh, sort of a sociological lens. From a sociological point of view, individualism is sort of this reductive idea that bad people are bad because of like an individual moral failing. If, if you look at Disney movies, Jafar is a bad guy because he does bad things. Scar is a bad guy because he does bad things. Ursula is a bad guy because she does bad things. And it's that sort of, there's no outside influence. Individuals are bad or good because of their personal moral failings or moral virtues. And that's fine, but it ignores the nuance of societal pressures. We are creatures of our society. We are products of our society. Most of us will go along with the path of least resistance that society has created for us, even if that's not necessarily a good path or a, or a moral path or, or the path we would like to think we would take when presented with a particular situation. Final Fantasy II seems to fall squarely on the side of individualism, assuming it's taking a position on this dichotomy, which I don't think it was, but just for the sake of this argument. There, there's not a lot of subtlety to the character's motivations, uh, and there don't seem to be a whole lot of societal influences, so I wonder since you are our resident expert in philosophy and sociology, I wonder if you can see an argument to be made about societal pressure in Final Fantasy II. For example, is there an argument to be made that the Emperor made his decisions to unleash hell on this planet as a direct consequence of a conquest mindset? I think we can assume that he was not the first Emperor of Palamecia, right? Empires tend to be legacies. 
Sure. So is there some sort of societal understanding, not to excuse his actions, but to better understand his actions from a, a societal point of view? I mean, I think there absolutely could be. Like you said, they're probably implied more in this game than they would be in later games. I think it's tough not to imprint some of what we would come to understand about the underlying philosophies of the people making Final Fantasy games because they would become so pronounced in future games. And knowing, like I said earlier, the kind of nuance they would put behind the motivations of characters like Sephiroth or Seymour Guado or Jekt if he's the villain in that game or <laughs> you know Cypher Adele Tamicia that whole weird thing Delita that's a great example it's probably the best example I love that game but you know it's not really pronounced in this game but I do think that it's there if you recognize the kind of world that you're living in again something that's common you see this in Game of Thrones a bit you see it in Lord of the Rings it's something that's at the very center of the story of Final Fantasy X which is this spiral of darkness there's kind of never a time in Final Fantasy 2 where things are at peace and that's always I think a, if not totally fair, a believable motivation for an emperor to make a time of peace. Everything is full of chaos right now. Even if I'm not going to do the best job, somebody needs to be in charge and put an end to these times of just absolute nonsense. So I think in that way, yeah, you can kind of understand the motivations of the Palamecian Empire. I think also, you know, our heroes get that same kind of treatment where you understand them through a heroic lens. Yes, on an individual level, because for the most part, they're fighting because at the very beginning of the game, something bad happened to them. Much like Luke Skywalker, as we talked sure. about in our Rebels vs. Empire. it Something bad happened to him, but by the end of the story he's not it's not like luke skywalker is fighting to avenge uh maru like right. you know yeah yeah not to you know disparage them but it's not his you know he's not standing there in that final scene with the emperor and with his father swearing to uncle owen and aunt maru that's just not what's going on there and so i think similarly again while implied our main characters, especially Leon, learn through the course of the game what's important. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Also find us on Patreon at Patreon.com FFWeekly for more episodes and content. Be sure to sub on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time 
when we examine the link between Final Fantasy and American sports, we develop some skills and write a chocobo. Promised land.